0: So this morning, what we're doing is we're actually starting a series that we're going to look at over the summer. And the series is helpful for us to look at today is all answering the question, who are those who are saved or what does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to be someone who is saved? And you'll see it in verse 13, chapter 23. It's the question that this man gives to Jesus. He says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He asked Jesus a question, will those who are saved be few? And for the next four chapters over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at that question. Will those who are saved be few? And he's less looking at the number of those who are saved, but just the qualities and characteristics of them. And so for us as Redeemer Church, it is telling us how we are meant to live in light of all that God has done for us. But as we read it, I wonder if you felt it's, it's quite a Harsh or kind of a stark message that Jesus has. Some of the language that he used seems stark, even sad. Let me give you an insight into um, our life. As a family, we were brought up in very different homes. Leanna was brought up in one set of home, and I was brought up in another home, and both were loving, but both were flawed, and we know that. And we see that most in how Maya is raised. When Maya wants to, when we want Maya to do her teeth, she's two years old, we want her to do her teeth. If she really doesn't want to do it, I'll probably give in, and we won't do it. Whereas Leanna is much more matter of fact about things. If you know her, you know this is true. She, will, she sings a song, I think it kind of comes out best in this. She sings a song, brush, brush, brush your teeth. Brush the plaque away. Brush, brush, brush your teeth. You don't want tooth decay. <laughs> Maya is two years old, and that is a song that we sing. And it's a stark message to tell her what might happen. And actually, I think that's the kind of message that Jesus has for us this morning. It's a stark message, like when we're lying in a hotel room and the bright light starts to flash and there's this noise that just shocks us awake and we're we're hurt by it. We're kind of unsure what's happening. But when we realize there's a fire coming, we're glad that it was a stark and shocking message to wake us up. And that's Jesus' message to the people specifically that he's speaking to. It's this harsh message, but it is a loving pleading of them. To turn back. Because I don't know if you noticed who he's speaking to. Look at 13 verse 31. It says that at that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him. 14 verse 1 he says one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. In fact for most of these next four chapters he's speaking to these Pharisees. And let me just tell you what they were like. They were the religious elite and one commentator says that the Pharisees were regarded as the authorized successors of of God's law, who sat on Moses' seat. They were the people that had God's laws handed to them, and they held themselves to that standard. They did everything that they could to live to that standard. And actually what you see is you read through these pictures, and as we see those shots in chapter 14 of what they are like, we're meant to see their own self-righteousness, their own idea that they are good enough for God in what they do and how they live, and how they do these things, and they've missed something huge. There's, like, there's a tragic irony in these words. They've missed the very person that they were waiting for their entire lives. The, the, the whole Old Testament scriptures that they had in their hands were pointing towards someone who was coming, and Jesus stood in front of them, and they missed it because they thought their own righteousness was what was going to save them, and Jesus says that is not the case Jesus speaks to them and says, that's not the case. And I say that it's a stark message, but it is pleading to them. Listen to the image that it gives in 1334. Jesus looks out over the city of Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. The message of Jesus is like a mother hen just clucking away, trying to get her chicks to come back to herself. He wants them to come back in because they stand out in the rain or they stand out in front of a fox and think they can handle it. And he's saying, no, 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 come in. I will protect you. I will look after you. And so it's a stark warning, and we need to. We need to see who it's to because when Jesus speaks these words, some of the harshest words that he speaks are always to the religious people, the people who think that they are safe because of everything that they do. And I say that because if you look forward a chapter, you know the story of the prodigal son. That is spoken to those who are tax collectors and sinners who are looked down on. And the image is not of kind of this, this stark reminder of a door being closed, but it is of a father running, unabandoned, towards his people. We have to remember who it's spoken to. So let's just have a look at what actually he says what is the stark warning that he says? And what we're going to do is we're going to run through most of the verses we're going to spend in is chapter 13, verse 22 to 35. And I think chapter 14 are just three pictures of what it looks like for an elder to lead well, but also just as an example to everyone of how we are meant to live in our lives. So let's just run through what Jesus says. This man comes up to him and says, Lord, will those who are saved be few and Jesus responds and says, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He says, Strive to enter into that. And I think he's saying to us, Redeemer, is just check your hearts daily that you are not becoming like this self righteous person. Strive. There is this active working towards it. Their time will come. There, sorry, there will, be, there will be a time to come. That you need to strive towards and then he kind of carries on and he tells them that just because we are listeners to these words it guarantees you nothing look how he carries on strive to enter through the narrow gate for many i tell you will seek to enter will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you began to stand outside and to knock at the door saying lord open to us then he will answer i do not know where you come from Then you begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you evil workers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, when you see Isaac, when you see Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom. But you yourself are cast out. What he's saying is just because you turn up to church week by week, it guarantees nothing. That's what he's saying to them. Then what he says to us. Now, just because your parents, your lineage, were part of the church, it guarantees nothing. Just because you were christened into the church, it guarantees nothing. Just because you're good outweighs your bad. He says to them and he says to us, it guarantees nothing. And it's a harsh warning almost to scare the self-righteousness out of them so that they realize just how close they are and yet, how far from entering into that kingdom that they are. And then he carries on and he tells them, because there will be a people who come from east and west, from north and south, and they will recline at table in the kingdom of God. That's where you wonder if Jesus was actually a Yorkshireman when he says that they recline at table in the kingdom of God. And he says, Behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. And kind of, we read that and we know that means we have to be humble and live these certain ways. But remember, he's saying it to the people who are first to receive God's word would be last because they didn't listen to it. And those who they look down on in their world would be first because they listened to what he says. It's the very people that they look down on that he's speaking to. And so the message is a stark message. But let me just add to that. It's actually a really sad message. Look at verses 13 to 35. And then once we do this, we're just going to sit in it and see what this means for us. This is all we're going to do is we're going to look at how stark a message is, how sad it is. And then I really want to just sit in what it means for us today. Look at the the so what. But listen to how sad a message it is because the, the story kind of carries on. Verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came out and said, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And at this point, we don't know what the Pharisees' kind of agenda is. We, they actually might be just genuinely trying to help him and keep him safe. What we read later kind of disagrees with that. But at this point, we don't really know um, what their kind of motive is, but it was probably to get rid of them. And Jesus replies by saying, Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today, tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken. The, the tone, when we read the Bible sometimes, just listening to the tone should tell us a lot. And it is deeply sad. It's a really, really sad message because Jerusalem was the epicenter of the Jewish religion. It was everything that they held to. And he stands out looking over the city and says, I, he laments over the city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, what are you doing? I, I came to you, As someone, like a hen, gathers her children and you kill the people who are sent to it. You're so close, and yet you're so far away. Your house is forsaken, like that mother hen who's trying to gather her people into herself. And the religious elite, they're standing outside and they're saying, no, no, I can handle this. I've been good. I'll be able to take on this this animal that's coming to terrorise us. I'll be able to handle the rain and Jesus pleads with them and he's still pleading with them to come back to himself. And the sadness is added to when they have been waiting, waiting for this person to come and he stands right in front of them and they don't realize it. They're blinded by their own stature, their own standing among their people and they do not realize who stands in front of them, and it's this tragic, tragic, like a Greek tragedy. The irony is, is massive, where, where the character stands, and his, his, his words and his actions are clear to the audience. It's clear to everyone what's happening, except to the person that he's speaking to. It is this deep, deep tragedy, and it is a plea that Jesus uses this shock tactic to try and get them to come back in. Can you see how it's so tragic? Can you see why the message has to be so stark? He pleads with them to realize that if they carry on down this route, it is forsaken. He wants to have compassion on them so they realize where they stand. It's a stark warning. And so now let's just look at what it means for us today. We've got four points. We're at number three. We're doing well. It is hot. I hope we understand just how this can apply for us today. There are a number of ways that we can listen to what Jesus says and how we can take it. And I think the first, the first is to say that turning up to church week by week and being involved in things doesn't guarantee you anything. They said, listen to what they said. They say, He says, I don't know where you come from. He says, we ate and we drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. You were standing up there. I remember the messages you gave. I remember the brilliant illustrations that you had, Jesus. Let me in. And he says, the door is closed. we, we, We can say, we turn up to church each week. We sung songs about you. We prayed to you. We read our Bible every morning. And he will turn and say, did you love me? Did you humbly call on my name alone as the only thing that saves you? I've said it before here and I've said it again, is that church is a terrible, terrible hobby. It is a waste of money, it is a waste of time, of effort, if you think that it does anything to gain you something with God, to gain stature, to gain blessings from God. It'd be much better to spend that money on a set of golf clubs, have brunch with your grandkids on a Sunday morning and turn up here, the clean and look after your garden better than clean this place if you think it is something that will stand you better, because the Pharisees here did all of that and more, and Jesus says, the door is closed if you do not call on my name. It is a stark, stark message. And I I think we're easy to kind of look out there, and we can think of kind of old Betty, who goes to church every week, or, or old Margaret, or old Victor, will go for a man as well, I'll go for old Victor who, who goes to church and that's what he does and he just does church because he thinks that gets him to God. We as a church, we obviously know that's not the case, right? But there's subtle ways I think that it gets to us. There are really subtle ways where we have the exact same heart, where we think things that we do gain us something with God. I think this is where it really hits home and this is where I've kind of been nervous to, to say it because I know how fundamental is in my heart, this kind of growing, this breeding of self-righteousness that is there. I think it comes out in two ways. One is where we question God. It is right to ask God why he is doing things. It is right to pray to God and ask these things. But when we've said we've done our Bible reading, we've done church things, and we question why he allows these things to happen to us, I think sometimes that comes from a heart that thinks we deserve better than this. One of the saddest um, conversations I had was with a good friend who was a, a church member and he actually worked for a church and he walked away from it all and he, I, I chatted to him for a long time and he said, I gave my life to this. I was there week by week. I drove people to places. I worked for the church. I did everything and God has just left me in this state. I'm unsatisfied. I'm unhappy. He never pulled through And so I walked away. And it was one of the saddest conversations because you would never have been able to tell. And I pray and I plead for him still just now because I see it in my own heart. And I think the other way, now this is it, I think the other way is when we not just question God, but we question why others don't do things for us that we think they should be doing. We question why that person in the church or the small group didn't live up to the standards because I think it comes from our heart that we deserve better than that. We have done good things for them. We have done good things for God. And when that that annoyance grows to bitterness and then to anger at that person, I think he really challenges us right now that it is from a standard of self-righteous heart, that I deserve better, that that person should be held to a higher standard. And I say all this knowing that It is right to call people out on things. But we are to pull out the the plank in our own eye before we get the speck in someone else's. Because I think it breeds from a heart that thinks we deserve better. And I say all of this because this week I was with Liana and I was so annoyed. I had done the morning shift with Maya and then put her down And she just sat and chatted, and I just wanted five minutes by myself to just sit on my phone and get distracted. That five minutes turned into 30, obviously, because it always does. But I was so annoyed at her, because what's she done? She's, what, she works? She's pregnant with her child? Is that all? Is that all she is? I deserve a break right now, and I realized, humbled by the passage we had to preach this week, that it was all because I thought I deserved that and I think, I think what chapter 14 shows us is that when we have this attitude to God, the self-righteousness that we have to God, it bleeds out into our relationships with others. The Pharisees here, they didn't care for the man who stood right in front of them who was ill. The Pharisees here, they wanted to sit at the exalted seats above other people. They didn't care for those who were crippled and oppressed and struggling. They wanted it on themselves, and Jesus really challenges us saying that the person who is saved is the person who is humble, who is last, who doesn't want their own center, their own self at the center, but is willing to go above and beyond for other people. And so that's the, that is the stark answer, and that is the, the "so what?" But there is an answer to all of this. And I think sometimes we struggle to think, how can I be more humble? And the irony in that is, how can I think of better of myself and be more humble to everyone else? It is all this kind of self-centered. I think what Jesus tells us is you're meant to just look out constantly. You're meant to care and love other people. What we can do is we can sit on this, we can check our hearts, but always we have to remember that we are to look to Jesus in everything. We are to look to him daily, knowing that even though our hearts can be self-righteous, that I can get annoyed at my wife because I deserve better. Jesus died for me knowing I was like that. I will challenge and I will strive to change, but I remember that God's grace covers all of that. The other is is that if you if you are not able to say that Jesus is the name that you call, and I say all this because verse 35 says that you'll be okay if you say, blessed is he who comes, In the name of the Lord. If you're not able to say that, where do you stand? What is it you actually stand on? Because the Pharisees, they were morally good. They were were revered and respected by everyone around them. They were good in how they lived, they were good in how they stood, they were the hallmark of moral living. And Jesus stands right in front of them, and they miss it. They miss who they were meant to be looking towards. Don't miss what Jesus offers. It is an offer that is here today. It is an offer that the Bible speaks about time and time again as the good news that we can be saved to God himself. It's a stark challenge because sometimes we need a harsh matter-of-fact message. And I think the other response, the last response, I think for us just to sit in and how we'll finish this morning is that as we look and try to act humble, the best way to do that is to look to Jesus in everything. The C.S. Lewis, the man who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, he said this brilliant quote: He says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. So it's not the person that says, I'm a horrible, horrible person. The right response is giving thanks to God in everything, in absolutely everything. And this should change how we look at God. It should change how we act towards other people because true humility is realizing that we deserve nothing, that we deserve absolutely nothing. And I think it's a call to us as a church, it's a call to Andrew as he makes these promises this morning that true humility starts with giving thanks to God in everything. If you have your Bibles, flick to page 511. And what we're going to do is we're going to finish just by reading this in just a couple more words on it. And I want to flick here because the verse in chapter 1335, where it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as the person who is saved comes from Psalm 118. And actually, as I was preparing this week and reading it, the the It enlightens, I think, how we're meant to understand all of this. Who is the person who is saved? It's not the person who looks like the Pharisee. It's not the person who lives self-righteous. It is the person who gives thanks to God in everything. And this shapes how we do everything else we do. This should shape how Andrew leads. Andrew should not lead as someone who lords over other people, but is humble in how he does it. I think from looking at the, the Pharisees, they cared more about the practice of the Sabbath in chapter 14 than the person who stood in front of them. My own heart is to say to Andrew is that the, what we are meant to do is to care less in elders meeting about how we do different things and actually the people who we are caring for. We are to lead by lovingly doing all these things. And the way we do that is looking at Psalm 118. And I'm just going to read through some of these. You can follow through if you have it in front of you. You can close your eyes and just listen to it. I'm going to jump through some of the verses, and you'll see just the similarities to what it says to us. This is how the person who looks to the Lord Jesus is meant to act. He says in verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 5, it says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper; is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Listen to this. Remember Luke 13, the narrow door. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success in that line in Luke 13:35, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord the Lord is God and he has made us his light to shine upon us. In the last two verses, you are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. We'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures to forever. How are we meant to live as humble people, as the last, as those who do not exalt themselves? Is to give thanks to God for everything that he does, to remind ourselves that that self-righteousness might creep up in our hearts. But we are to remember that we are nothing. We are to serve others, constantly going out of our way, sacrificially for others, expecting nothing in return. Why? Because we are utterly, utterly thankful that God lavished upon us his graces through nothing that we have done. It is all because of what he has done. So this is a call to Andrew as he serves the church. To, to lead but not lord over people, to spend time with those people who don't necessarily give them much in return, to love the church family and not the practices when we're at elders' meetings. But it's also a call to us to give thanks to God for all that he's done and live every aspect of our life, every single aspect, knowing that it is only by him that we have been saved out of the pit and despair that we found ourselves in. Jesus pleads like a mother hen to those who do not call the name of Jesus. He lovingly, lovingly pleads like a fire alarm to tell us that we need him and to be blessed is to live in his name. Let's pray and then we'll sing. You are our God and we will give thanks to you. Give thanks to the Lord because he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Lord God, you have been gracious to us time and time again. Help us to remember that as those who are saved, we are to live like that. Live that we deserve nothing. Humble before you, thankful to you for all that you have done. Help us to chasten our own hearts, to strive, to challenge ourselves, asking if if the reason for our anger is because actually we are self-righteous in our heart. Pray this morning that we would be able to lift the name of Jesus high because of all that he has done for us as he was on his way to Jerusalem to die in our place, to die in the place of the people who were against him, he pleads with them one more time, will you turn back to me? This is a call for all of us here this morning. And Lord God, we ask that we'd impress upon our hearts that we give thanks to you for all that you have done, for you are good and your steadfast love is forever. Come in.